fluid resuscitation, an area of intense debate. Fluid resuscitation needs to be patient-specific. MAP and systolic blood pressure, in my opinion, are a flawed target for fluid resuscitation. It gets us to understand that this patient cohort was sepsis-like. Systolic blood pressure is just not really a good target. Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine, coming to you from Baltimore, Maryland, and on behalf of my stellar CCPEM co-host, Dr. John Greenwood, Dr. Peter W., and Dr. Rob Rodriguez. Welcome back to another podcast here on CCPEM. We are excited to hit the ground running with yet another hot-off-the-press article that pertains to an incredibly important topic that we see every day in the emergency department, even on the floors and in the ICU, and that is sepsis, specifically fluid resuscitation, an area of intense debate over the last many, many years, and a critical step in the management of resuscitating patients with sepsis. But before getting to that article, let me check in with my stellar co-host here, Dr. Greenwood, I'm going to head north to Philly first, see how things are with you. Yeah, things are great. People are down off the flagpoles after last weekend and then the Eagles getting into the <laughs> Super Bowl. A couple of incidents of people standing on top of the bus stops falling through that had to take care of some bumps and bruises in the hospital in West Philly. But overall, nothing but happiness and survivors. So we're doing great. That's what I was just going to say. A good mood in Philadelphia this week. Huh? Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm going to head west all the way from Philly out to San Fran and check in with Dr. Rodriguez. How are you? Doing great. Doing great here. We lost to your team, but it was a quarterback problem that I saw in the game. And otherwise, doing well. Just have to warn you that there's a spy balloon crossing over the country <laughs> towards your direction. It passed overhead. Just saw it overhead yesterday. So We've seen <laughs> some of those news sightings or, or news stories, yes. All right. Well, let's come back around to Baltimore, but pass through the South, New Orleans, Dr. W. Yeah. So things are wonderful. Two things going on here. So first is it's carnival season. So everybody's ready for New Orleans Mardi Gras. And as that rolls out in the next few weeks, that's exciting. And then we're getting ready for critical points, which will be held in Charleston. And so the interface of emergency medicine and intensive care medicine. So we're looking forward to that in March. So those of you who are interested in attending, please look at that offering. Again, critical points in emergency medicine in Charleston. Outstanding. That conference is really, really amazing. And those of you listening who want to go to Charleston this year in, I think, mid to late March, we can confirm the dates towards the wrapping up, Peter, with respect to this particular podcast. But it's a fabulous conference, a lot of one-on-one -on -one teaching from the instructors, and it's just an amazing experience. So would encourage all of you to check that out. Peter, I think it's criticalpoints.net. Is that correct? That is correct. And it will be pre-courses on the 19th, courses on the 20th, 21st, and folks leaving out on the 22nd. Outstanding. Yep. Please check into that. All right. Well, turning our attention to sepsis, sepsis resuscitation, specifically fluid resuscitation. And we have a very important article. Now, last podcast, we reviewed key articles from the 2022 literature. I suspect this one will be a very important article here as we start 
2023. And this is the CLOVERS trial. This just came out in New England Journal of Medicine just a few weeks ago. Lead author is Dr. Shapiro. Many of you know Nate Shapiro, but this was put out by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Their pedal network, in essence, it is titled Early Restrictive or liberal fluid management for sepsis-induced hypotension. So I'm going to stop talking, Peter. I'm going to turn to you first. Set the stage. Give us the background for why this CLOVERS trial was put together and completed. You got it. And so major shout out to Nate and that whole team for CLOVERS, because I think this is important direction for resuscitation in emergency medicine. So from a background standpoint, we know that IV fluid administration is really a central tenet for resuscitation of our patients with septic shock and sepsis-induced hypotension. We know that the goal of IV fluid administration is really to restore our intravascular volume that tends to be maldistributed in sepsis. IV fluid administration can actually help our macrovascular and microvascular perfusion, and in turn, reverse organ hypoperfusion and address that dysfunction. IV fluids can also cause, on the negative side, a dilutional coagulopathy. It can also create fluid overload in some cases, and then create organ congestion and edema, and actually impair oxygen delivery in some cases at tissue level. We know that vasopressors are often used in sepsis-induced hypotension and hypoperfusion, but also comes with the risk of creating tissue ischemia in certain cases, also to increase cardiac workload and to create dysrhythmias in many cases of patients who require vasopressors to support their blood pressure. The administration of large amounts of IV fluids is common during the resuscitation phase of patients with septic shock, though this practice is based on an overall low quality of evidence, so it's really not a direct cause and effect, which is supported by a level of evidence in the literature. An alternative approach that we've supported here is the earlier initiation of vasopressors in the resuscitation phase, so not waiting for a particular IV fluid bolus to go in before institution of vasopressors, and so there's some argument towards that. The recent classic trial, which we reviewed here, did not show a difference in 90-day mortality in ICU patients with sepsis randomized to a restrictive or an unguided fluid resuscitation strategy. But again, we reviewed that here. And so it'll be interesting to see what John Greenwood thinks about the objectives. Yeah, thanks, Peter. That's a great summary of kind of where we're at today. And it'll be interesting to see what all of, I think, what everyone's opinions are about this at the end. So the Clover's trial was conducted really to compare the effects of, as you said, kind of like this idea of, should we restrict fluid in patients early on and use early vasopressors or really just use a liberal fluid strategy specifically in the first 24 hours of resuscitation in patients with sepsis-induced hypotension. So there's been a few definitions of sepsis over the past few years, but essentially this is really looking at that hypotensive septic patient early on in the first 24 hours, which is you know, in a lot of places in the emergency department the entire time, as before we started recording, talking about the boarding challenges that all of us, I think, are facing across the country. So as we go into the methods, let's talk a little bit about 
how they went about testing their hypotheses. So this was a multi-center, randomized, unblinded superiority trial that was performed in 60 centers across the United States. And in terms of inclusion and exclusion criteria, the inclusion criteria was really adults. So this did not include pediatric patients. And these adult patients had to have suspected or confirmed, which was defined by basically the administration of antibiotics, suspected or confirmed infection. Now, how they determined hypotension, well, they decided that sepsis-induced hypotension would be defined by a systolic blood pressure less than 100 millimeters of mercury after the administration of at least one liter of fluids. So these are patients that had a low systolic blood pressure after receiving one liter of IV fluids. Now, they did have some important exclusion criteria. So any patient who was more than four hours from meeting the criteria for hypotension refractory to that initial liter of fluid bolus was excluded from the trial. They weren't included if they had been in the hospital for at least 24 hours, essentially. That they had previously received more than three liters of fluids that included EMS administration of fluids, which can always be tricky to kind of figure that out. Evidence of fluid overload, as well as severe volume depletion from non-septic causes. So those were the inclusion exclusion criteria. And let's look a little bit about the trial procedure. So this was a randomized trial that was in a one-to-one ratio. And the restrictive fluid strategy essentially was described as this. So for the restrictive group, they prioritize vasopressors as the primary treatment for sepsis-induced hypotension. And then they did allow for rescue fluids for a few pre-specified indications that suggested severe intravascular volume depletion. So in general, after that first liter, they prioritized vasopressors and then allowed for some rescue fluids. Now the liberal fluid strategy group recommended at least two liters of crystalloid followed by fluid boluses on the basis of clinical triggers. And a few listed include things like high heart rate or tachycardia. They did allow for rescue vasopressors for some pre-specified indications in the liberal fluid strategy group. Now, each group was followed for a period of 24 hours and a combination of the trial team supporting the protocol and the clinical team following the protocol for the first 24 hours was how they went about incorporating the protocol into clinical care. They did allow for the administration of pressors via central line or peripheral line. So hopefully that reduced any delays to achieving the clinical endpoints that they were trying to achieve. The primary outcome was death from any cause before discharge home by day 90. And they also looked at a number of secondary outcomes at 28 days, which included days free from mechanical ventilation, renal replacement therapy or dialysis, days free from vasopressors, days out of the ICU and out of the hospital. So that's the setup. That's the structure of the trial. And maybe it's a good point to turn to Rob to go through what did they find? Yeah, thanks, John. So they enrolled a total of 1,563 patients, equally matched 782 patients in the restrictive category and 781 in the liberal group. And their baseline characteristics, notably, were they had similar volume of IV fluids prior to randomization, similar pressors before randomization. And most notable thing about this study is that the Data and Safety Monitoring Board 
recommended halting the trial for futility at the second interim analysis. So as part of trials like this, there's a data safety monitoring board in a blinded fashion, looks at data from these trials, and they have certain criteria for halting the trial or continuing the trial. And I have to say that they're pretty strict criteria to halt a trial. In other words, they have to be pretty sure that the trial is not going to show benefit. And so in this case, the DSMB recommended stopping the trial because of futility at the second interim analysis. And at that point, in terms of volumes in the two groups, in the first six hours, the restrictive group had had 500 mLs of fluid compared to the liberal group, which had had 2,300 mLs. In terms of cumulative volume over 24 hours, the restrictive group had about 1,260 mLs versus 3,500 mLs in the liberal group. And in terms of total medium cumulative IV fluids, including pre-enrollment IV fluids, the totals were 3,300 in the restrictive group and 5,400 mLs in the liberal group. So in the end, about two liters difference, more or less, between the two groups in terms of volume over the study period. With regard to the primary outcomes, there was no statistical difference in the primary outcome. There was 14% of the restrictive group had the primary outcome versus 14.9% in the liberal group. And there were also no differences in pre-specified subgroup analyses of this primary outcome. Likewise, in terms of the secondary outcomes, there were no differences in secondary outcomes. Then with regard to safety outcomes, the number of serious adverse events were similar between the two groups. 500 patients received vasopressors via a peripheral IV and there were only three stravization events, and all three of those resolved without intervention. So bottom line, no differences in any outcomes between the two groups and no differences in safety. Thanks so much, Rob, taking us through some important and key results. Well, before we go around the table and see really what the take-home message is and what we should do at the bedside, let me just highlight a few limitations that the authors pointed out in the study Now, overall, they had pretty high adherence to both protocols, whether it be the restrictive or liberal fluid strategy. I think it was in the upper 90s. But despite that, they say and note that, well, some patients in the restrictive fluid group, well, they got a little bit more fluid than was intended. And some patients assigned to the liberal fluid group, well, they got a little bit lower than they had intended. But at the end of the day, it didn't seem it was a tremendous number of patients. The authors also acknowledge that there may be some important subgroups that they didn't assess for that may end up benefiting from either a restrictive or a liberal fluid strategy. They also didn't test where clinicians really weren't receiving guidance. And this gets back to one of the trial procedures that I think John was referring to as he went through that section that members of the study group appear to be assisting the clinicians and bedside team of how to walk through the protocol. And I think with respect to this important article, they have a nice table in the publication itself that really goes through exactly the steps and the flow diagram of how each arm played out in terms of next steps with treatment. 
Lastly, they list as one of the limitations is that they really evaluated up to 24 hours of these particular strategies and almost exclusively enrolled patients coming into the ED. So with that, this is an incredibly important clinical question. Patients have sepsis-induced hypotension. We've given them one to three liters. And then where do we go? Do we continue with aggressive volume resuscitation or do we shift more to emphasizing vasopressors in the first 24 hours, primarily in the ED? So this really seems to be extremely and almost exclusively applicable to the patients we see coming into the ED. But gentlemen, as Rob took us through there, there actually wasn't a difference. So, you know, John, I'm going to turn to you. Does that mean I shouldn't be getting my ED pharmacist on board, priming the vasopressor infusion? Let's just go ahead and in my instance, push additional balance crystalloid. How do you interpret these results? And then what can we provide for all of our listeners to take it back to the bedside? Yeah, it's a great question, Mike. And I'll say three quick things. I think now with Clovers, I think we have a quorum of studies between Clovers and Classic that tell us essentially that strict or liberal strategies that are kind of fixed don't impact outcomes per se. There's no difference here. So that means that we probably shouldn't be using fixed doses of fluid in resuscitating all of our patients who come in with septic shock. So my hope is, is that this really downgrades that 30 cc per kilo mandate and gets us to be a little bit more thoughtful about fluid resuscitation and fluid resuscitation trials. The last thing is that MAP and systolic blood pressure, in my opinion, are a flawed target for fluid resuscitation. We've known this for a long time, right? And we've talked about this over and over again on CCPM, as well as in our lecture circles and everything that Fluid resuscitation needs to be patient-specific. It needs to be guided by evidence-based measures like dynamic measures of volume responsiveness. We're thinking about how we're deciding on these fluid resuscitation boluses, or even better, with targets that focus on tissue perfusion or flow endpoints like capillary refill time. But they require thoughtfulness at the bedside. It can't just be a number that we click a button off in our Epic order system and goes to the nurse to deliver X amount of fluid just because the patient has a low blood pressure. So my hope is that this will really start driving this idea home. And I'll just leave it at that. Well, Dr. Greenwood, I think those are some very powerful statements that you had in there, an outstanding analysis and really guidance for when we're resuscitating these patients. Let me now transition to Dr. W, who ahead of our recording said he had made some notes on this study. Peter, additional comments. Yeah, a couple of additional comments. Again, I like the study. I like John's comments in the study, and I echo that. Some of what I have to say will dovetail into that. But I, I think it's important to understand that these were... First, the measure of systolic blood pressure less than 100, theoretically, the patient could have a blood pressure of 99 over 80. And so it's not a great measure. I'm a big fan of dynamic measures, but I think at least it should have been mean arterial blood pressure. And it gets us to understand that this patient cohort was sepsis light. Now, why do you say it's sepsis light? They were sick with sepsis, but not critically ill septic shock patients on the main. Only 59% of the patients in the fluid restrictive groups received vasopressors, only 59%. And then only 
and the fluid liberal group received vasopressors. So these really weren't, you know, really sick patients. So I want to point that out because I think that that's on the main, to me, it seemed that these were more healthy cohort of patients than the ones that we envisioned, right? And so the message I take is that it's equally safe to go fluid liberal versus vasopressor heavy and early on these patients. But we really haven't answered the question for our acutely toxic patients. What I would hate to believe is that providers would take this study and say, look, we really don't need vasopressors now. It's okay if their mean arterial blood pressure is 45. Let's continue to give fluid and let's let that go for the next couple of hours as we give fluid boluses as opposed to simultaneously treating with vasopressors. I think we haven't answered the question for the acutely ill patient in in profound shock. Outstanding comments, Peter. Thanks for that analysis. And looking back, mortalities in both, death from any cause before hospital discharge by day 90, around that 14%, still seem, as you said, a, a little on the low side in terms of the mortality that we see for really sick patients with sepsis. All right, rounding out opinions, thoughts, interpretations, and recommendations, Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah, thanks, Mike. So I completely agree with Peter about this being a sepsis light type study. These findings don't necessarily apply to our really sick septic patients, the septic shock patients. I also agree with John about that they had a kind of flawed targets. Systolic blood pressure is just not really a good target or a good inclusion criteria from my standpoint. You should really focus on, in addition to MAP, like things like pulse pressure and other measures of perfusion when you're looking at a trial like this and when you're looking at instituting measures. The point I really want to make, however, is that the history of this topic goes way back to like ancient history when I was training in the late 80s and 90s. People have looked at this topic over and over about fluids and pressors and septic shock. You know, it goes way back to Manny Rivers. And even before Manny Rivers, a guy named William Shoemaker, Bill Shoemaker, he practiced down in Los Angeles where I trained. And this principle of early goal-directed therapy type thing. And so for 30 to 40 years, we've been looking at these trying to improve survival by aggressive fluids and then pressors like dobutamine and the pendulum has kind of swung back and forth between you should give a ton of fluids and pressors versus now and then it's swung back to well maybe we should be more restrictive perhaps we're flooding the lungs so again pendulum has swung back and forth over the years and what that tells me is that it probably doesn't matter that much which approach you use in terms of pushing fluids or pushing pressors or pushing a combination of pressors. It probably doesn't make that much difference. All of these studies, in the end, when they've gone back and looked at them, they are insignificant findings. I think that there's really no magic bullet in terms of how much fluid you should give or how much pressure you should give. That's not to say that we should ignore the topic or that you should not provide fluids and pressors. That just means that 
you should individually tailor your approach in patients and focus on parameters like lactate levels, urine output, traditional perfusion parameters when you're approaching a patient like this. I really like all of your statements, Rob, and really specifically the last one and to tie it into what John and Peter both said about really returning to the bedside and individualizing that patient's resuscitation according to what they need, their comorbidities, how they're trending during your early resuscitation hours of these patients really makes a tremendous amount of sense and adds a lot of value. And this particular podcast has been super helpful because I know this particular study, a lot of folks have been waiting for it in terms of what were the results of the Clover's trial. And we've got it now, it's in print, and we would certainly encourage all of you to take a look at the study and interpret that, take a look at the patients they enrolled. Are they the type of patients you're seeing? And reach some conclusions. This has been an outstanding discussion and really on the heels of our literature update. Super excited to get February kicked off with this study. And gentlemen, just an outstanding job. We're going to ask those of you, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, and want to contribute to the conversation on the Clover's trial, and also more importantly, with respect to early or additional fluids, early vasopressors, we love to hear from you. So please shoot us an email through the website. Once again, thanks for listening here to CCPEM. We will look forward to talking to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.